Yesterday I was on an opportunity. I had a chance to go out on an ambulance ride along with a member of our church family. And uh, he's on an ambulance down in Austin that it takes exclusively 911 calls. And so I was out there yesterday, and let me just tell you, I was left with some impressions. First of all, we need to pray for and appreciate those first responder folks because, man, they are in the thick of it. And I was, man, I'm serious. I, I was so moved to just be more faithful in prayer for them because of what they're facing regularly as they go out into our community. Another impression that I was left with, and and I just got a small experience, and in that small experience, I got a glimpse into the world, and let me just tell you, you you already know this, but this world is broken. I I mean, it it did not take long for me to just have an upfront and personal experience with brokenness. The kind of brokenness that leaves you just sad and angry. I got to experience some individuals who I know as children probably aspired to live life to the full. And now as adults, you you have a hard time even seeing a sliver of hope in their lives. Just brokenness. I know that if not for Jesus Christ, I would be broken without remedy in the brokenness of this world. So when I went home and kind of unpacked some of my experiences with my family, talked to them about what it was like, and then got to spend the rest of the day hanging out in my home with my family, doing some of the things we love to do together, I was just struck by the contrast of what it's like to experience the fruit of the assurance that you know Jesus Christ. And what it's like to live instead from brokenness to brokenness. And it it really affected my heart. I tell you that because it is so much better to live from assurance to assurance, than brokenness to brokenness. And God wants us all to live in the assurance of knowing Him. And 1 John chapter 5, our last sermon in the series, is the greatest invitation to live in assurance. So let's read this together. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 18. Now, I want to remind you before we read verse 18 of what verse 13 said in chapter 5. Verse 13 says, I wrote these things to you so that you might know you have eternal life. So the entire book of 1 John has been written primarily around the theme that God wants us to know that we know that we know. If if we've not come away from this study with a deeper awareness that God wants us to know more than we've ever known before that we know Him, we've missed the main part of 1 John. And so I want us to make sure that if you've missed it until now, you don't miss it today. 
This book is written so that your assurance in knowing God increases and that you actually believe you can live from assurance to assurance. God wants you to know. All right, let's read 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But the one born of God keeps him. And the evil one does not or cannot touch him. We know that we are from God or of God. And the world, the whole world, lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So that we Know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This one is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Assurance. God wants us to know we have eternal life. And so we are reminded in this passage of what we know. We know, verse 18, that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Have you ever felt like in a time when you have sinned, that maybe you're not as sure about your relationship with God as you were before you sinned. Sometimes it feels like when we sin against God, that maybe we're not as assured of our eternal life as we would be if we hadn't walked into that sin. And this scripture is telling us that the perceived threat of our own sins against God to our assurance that we belong to God should be seen as no threat at all. I think that's pretty interesting. You ever been in a situation where you've been threatened by someone? I can remember when I was threatened by a couple individuals at gunpoint back in 1998. Um, it left me with a feeling of being threatened by a whole lot of things in my life. Uh, I found that in a dark parking lot in a shopping area that after I was mugged, I felt like the, just being in a parking lot at night felt like I was threatened and I was looking at every car and wondering who was going to attack me and I felt threats around me that were no threat at all because of an experience of a real threat. Sometimes I think we feel like our sin is a real threat to our assurance. What this scripture is telling us is that our sin as believers is not as real a threat as we might think it is. You see, this is the way God's designed things. God has designed things so that when we are born of God through our faith in Jesus Christ, we don't keep on sinning 
as if we have no regard for God and His righteousness. That's not how we act anymore. And back in 1 John chapter 3, we were told that we don't act that way anymore because we've been born of God. In other words, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, He brings you into His family. And God the Father is now your Father. And because the Spirit of Christ now lives in you, and you've been cleansed of all your sin, you will begin to look more and more like your Father. You will resemble the family you've been brought into. Because you've been born of God, you've been spiritually changed. Your spiritual DNA has been fundamentally altered so that now you cannot live your life continuing in sin as if it didn't matter how you live. God's changed the way you think about what you do, how you do it, and why you do it, so that you cannot continue sinning with no regard for God and righteousness because you're in a different family. That's 1 John 3, but here we are in 1 John 5, and this tells us that we don't continue. We know that we don't keep on sinning. As people have been born of God, Because Jesus Christ, the one who's been born of God, keeps us. We don't just keep on living as if it doesn't matter how we live, because Jesus Christ himself keeps us. He's concerned about us. He has a purpose for us. He wants us to experience what it means to know him. And so he promises that he will keep us. He will not let us go. He's the one who cleanses us from our sins. He's the one that sends his spirit to indwell us. He's the one that completely changes who we are. He's the one that increases our awareness of our experiences of of knowing him and knowing what it means to walk into things that would keep us from knowing him. It's Jesus Christ who moves us to places of recognizing our sin. And he moves us to places of recognizing our sin so that we might confess our sin. And in confessing our sin, we might know through his presence and his promises that the sin we confess, he forgives. And when we know that he forgives that sin, it's Jesus Christ, by way of his spirit and his word, who keeps us in a place of understanding that when we've been cleansed from our sin, all that's left towards us is God's favor. And when all we have toward us is God's favor, we have this incredible encouragement from Jesus Christ that we can leave some of that sin we confessed behind more and more for the rest of our lives. Jesus Christ keeps us. He guards us because we belong to his family. He keeps us to the degree that This passage says that the evil one cannot touch us. How many times do you feel like that the fact that we have this enemy who comes against us to tempt us into sin and we fall into sin is a real threat to our assurance? Well, God is saying this is the way I've designed things that in the brokenness of this world as you succumb to the threats of the enemy, you might realize that the enemy has no power over you. Because I've made a way for you to escape the power of the enemy and the control of sin and instead live in the freedom of my righteousness. And it's by way of confession of your sin, experiencing my favor and leaving that sin behind and again, again and again. So you experience a little bit of my righteousness more and more for the rest of your life. And you experience again and again and again that the power of the evil one has been destroyed over your life. The evil one cannot touch us. 
What does that mean? I mean, the Bible does say that if you follow Jesus Christ, you can expect to be persecuted. You think about Jesus' life on the earth. The evil one stirred up a whole bunch of trouble about Jesus Christ, so much so that he ended up on the cross, crucified for our sins because of the evil reaction to his testimony of truth. Evil most definitely touched him, but not in the sense that it changed the purpose of God. Not in the sense that it robbed Jesus of the opportunity to be the Son of God who saves the world. No, evil did not touch Jesus. Evil was just used by the Lord's sovereign plan to bring about redemption for the world. When you think about who we are in Christ, evil has no more authority over us than it did over Jesus. And it had absolutely no authority over Jesus Christ. Will you and I be touched by evil and brokenness in the sense that we won't escape the danger of being a follower of Christ in this world? Absolutely. But will we be touched in the sense that we have any lack of assurance in this world? Absolutely not. Will we be touched in the sense that our eternal life can be taken from us? No way. We are so kept by Christ and protected from the evil one that any and everything the evil one intends for our harm, God in his gracious sovereignty redeems for our good and his glory. You watch people in life that don't know Jesus Christ and the evil one brings harm in their life and it results in destruction and emptiness. Because the enemy wants to destroy. You watch people who are children of God experience the evil one bringing harm into their life. And you know what you'll, you'll see? You'll see God take that very same harm and an intent to destroy and turn it into the redemptive work of God that displays the goodness of God through joy and hope that propels them through any difficulty, so much so that at the end of that difficulty, they would say, the evil one did not touch me. God took everything the evil one intended for harm and turned it for my good and his glory. No matter how you struggle as a follower of Christ, God has designed that struggle to be a part of your assurance that you know him. So when you sin, confess your sin. Trust that Jesus Christ wants to help you leave that sin behind and experience your victory little by little over the evil one and give glory to God that you know that you know him. You ever feel like living in this world is a tough place to live? I mean, it's challenging, isn't it? We live in a world that's broken. And it says right here in this passage, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It doesn't take a lot of looking around to see that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I learned that in a few hours yesterday in a fresh new way. I mean, we live in a world that right now, I mean, we don't have to look further than just around us in our own country. We, we live in a world that right now celebrates some of the craziest, most evil things we can imagine. 
We live in a broken world. Sometimes I think it's easy to begin thinking that living in this broken world is actually a real big problem when it comes to knowing that we know God. But what I want you to see is that because we know we are of God and that the world is in the grips of the evil one, we can know that we have assurance that we know him right in this world. As broken as this world is, this world right now, as broken as it is, is the world in which God wants his people to thrive in assurance. The way God has designed this is that we would be in this world that is as broken as can be and not be of this world. So he has taken us out of this world in the sense that he has placed us from the family of the evil one into the family of God. So that we are now not of the world, but we are instead of God. But we're still in the world that's under the power of the evil one. So the evil one is working in the world to thwart the purposes of God, but we've been taken out of his family, but we've been left to live in the world that the evil one is controlling by his power under the sovereignty of God. Why is that happening? Because right now in the brokenness of this world, God designed a, for a people to so know him that they can live in that brokenness and be a light in the darkness. This world is exactly where we're supposed to be, to thrive in assurance. And the more broken it seems to us, ought to encourage us that we are of God. And we live right where we're supposed to live, right where we're needed to live, to know God most and display Him greatest. This, this is where we are to thrive. The world is not a threat to our assurance. The world is where our assurance flourishes and I am grateful for that promise the scripture says in verse 20 that we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know the one who is true and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ you know, I've heard people along the way give some objection to this idea of assurance that you know God because it's hard to understand the Bible. It's hard to understand what it means to be a Christian and what that looks like to, to be a follower of God. And I just want to encourage you that this scripture is reminding us again that the challenges of knowing God and understanding the scripture is not a, an obstacle to assurance. The way that God has designed a relationship with him is actually a perfect way for assurance to flourish. I know because of this passage, we know that Jesus has come. We know it. We know that he's come and he has given us understanding so that we might know him. 
Jesus Christ not only keeps us from the evil one and brings us out of our sin, Jesus Christ no longer, not only rescued us from the world so that we can live in the world and still know that we know him, but Jesus Christ gives each one of us understanding so that we can really know him. So yes, this is a big book. It's a hard book in places. It's a challenge to weave these patterns in your life of reading God's word and spending time praying. There's no doubt that it's full of challenges. It's not easy to say, I know God whom I have not seen, and I believe in the love that he has for me because he told me he loved me in a book. That's not easy, but here's what makes it all different. Jesus Christ has come, and he has given us understanding so that we know him. We're not just talking about making observations about facts. We're not just saying, hey, I can see that a book has been written. We're talking about the person of Jesus Christ coming and giving us understanding so that when we open this book, it actually makes sense to us. He wants us to know more than we could ever want to know. And he has given us understanding. Not only that, but we are in him. That's a huge leap. When my kids were little, my boys, they, uh, they wanted to play Little League Baseball. And I remember when my oldest decided to play Little League Baseball. He was about in third grade or so. And uh, I sat in the stands watching him play and, and watching the coaches coach him. And as every parent does in the stands, they always wonder what in the world the coach is doing. And they have questions about the coach and wonder why they did that. And we'd go home and Lindley and I had had conversations. Well, I wonder what he didn't, why he didn't do this or why he did this. And we'd have conversations about what it's like to, to be a coach. And I certainly believed that I understood a little bit maybe what it'd be like to be a coach. Well, the, the next year, I volunteered to be a helper with the team. And so the coaches used me at practice as hard labor. And so I would go out there and chase balls all over the outfield. But I was taking notes. I was watching what the coaches were doing in practice because I wanted to figure out what translated from the practice into the game and why the coach did what they did because oftentimes I'd think to myself, I don't know why that coach is doing that. Well, the next year, I moved from volunteer helper and I became a coach of a team. You know what I discovered? You don't know anything about being a coach until you're a coach. There's a really big difference being on the sidelines or in the bleachers, observing things happening and think you know what it's like because you've observed something you're not really in. But when you get in coaching, you see it a whole different way. God has not just given us understanding. Jesus Christ has brought us in him. We're not, we're not just observing facts. We are in him. And he is in us. And we literally have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So that when we open this book and we read these words... The Spirit of God brings these words to life 
as the revelation of God himself spoken into our lives. We are in him and he is in us. We are with him and he is with us. The fact that this relationship with Christ, this journey of Christianity seems complicated should not make us think that it's hard to know that we know him. No, the way this has been designed is such that as we walk through the journey, as challenging as it may be along the way, that we regularly experience that Jesus Christ has placed us in God. And we know him. And we can live from assurance to assurance. So many of the things in life that we think threaten assurance are no threat at all. They're actually, by design, the avenue to live from assurance to assurance. But there is a significant threat. John tells us, little children, keep yourselves from idolatry. I love that he again addresses the reader, little children. I believe that when he addresses the reader, little children, he's really conveying the heart of God. When God thinks about us, he thinks about how much he wants us to know that we know him. That he's concerned about us and that he says to us, Little kids, my kids, my children, I want you to know me. And I've leveraged all my power and all my purposes and all my plans so that you might, right where you live and all the challenges that you face, might thrive and flourish in knowing me. Little children, I care about you. I want you to know me more than you can imagine. And so I want you, as I keep you, to keep yourselves from idols. This is the one significant threat that we're left with as an exclamation point at the end of this book that is to heighten our assurance to degrees that we've never had before. And the one threat against us is idolatry. I seriously doubt that over the weekend any of you got in your garage and crafted a wooden idol and set it up in your home this morning before you came to the church, all your family got down and knelt before that wooden idol. If you did do that, I'd love to meet with you after the service. I'd like to encourage you. Just because we don't do that, please don't misunderstand that this command applies to us. Keep yourselves from idols. First John gives us a really big clue of one of the most significant idols we must avoid. First John was written to increase the assurance of true believers that what they believe about Jesus Christ is in fact true and has in fact been the avenue through which they have received eternal life. There were some folks in the church that did not believe in who Jesus was. They had defined for themselves who Jesus was and thought that was just fine and so, so much so that they departed from the church and they said about themselves, we're just fine believing what we want to believe. We don't need to be a part of what you believe. We're going to reject that, go do our own thing. We're fine. We believe what we want to believe about Jesus and we're good with that. And John tells the church they really weren't with you. 
because they left. Any time that we begin to live our lives such that we neglect what Jesus Christ has said about who he is, and instead we simply rely on what we think about him, without taking the opportunity to confirm who he is and what he said. We just live on the basis of what we think, what we've experienced, what we assume must be true, and we redefine who Jesus is with no regard for what he said. I can tell you this, you are drifting into idolatry. Because it will be our habit without constantly bringing in front of our eyes the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Word of God. It will be our habit to redefine who He is and to find acceptable what we've said He is as long as everything's going good in our lives. Hey, it's going fine. I don't need that. The Jesus I've defined in my mind is doing just fine for me. But the reality is that drift of neglecting who Jesus says He is and depending on what we think about Him is a drift into idolatry. And it is a dangerous drift. You cannot live from assurance to assurance if all you depend upon are your ideas about God while neglecting what God has plainly said about Himself. Now, there's a flip side to that coin. Sometimes we can think things about ourselves that do not square up with who Jesus is. I'm going to tell you right now that if you spend your next month of life living in shame or guilt or regret from your sins that you've committed in your life, while at the same time you're asking the Lord to help you follow Him, you are drifting into idolatry because you are ignoring what Jesus says about Himself and you are allowing what you think about yourself to be a lie that dictates who you are. There is no way that it is God's plan for a believer in Jesus Christ to suffer under the shame of their sin when God says if you confess that sin, He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. And if you continue to squander your life away under shame and regret and guilt, then what you're doing is you're believing a lie and you're neglecting the truth all about something that's true about you that you should believe. You should believe that you are cleansed from your sin and trust Him to remove that guilt and shame. And you should not live in that anymore. And if you do live in any perspective of yourself, that is in contradiction to what God says about you, that is a slow drift into idolatry. I'm not conveying to you that it's easy to believe that you've been forgiven and to get away from guilt. I'm saying that if you don't square up what you think about yourself with what God says about you, it is a slow drift in the wrong direction. And you cannot live in assurance if you don't measure what you think about yourself to what God says about you. You know, believing what God says about himself and believing what God says about you is essential for living in assurance from assurance. But that's not the only way idolatry can creep into our lives. There's a story in the Old Testament about Hezekiah. 
And Hezekiah uh, destroyed this bronze snake that had been laying around in the temple for years. Moses had made it many years before. Moses had made it because it was a time in the wilderness when God had sent some snakes into the camp as a little plague against the Israelites, and they were getting bit by these snakes, and they were dying. And so Moses fashioned this bronze snake, put it up on this stick, and said, if anybody looks at it, they'll be healed. And so Moses did that as a way for God to convey a great truth of redemption and salvation through trusting in Him. Here you are many, many years later, and this same bronze snake is in the temple. You know what? the people of God were doing in Hezekiah's day. The bronze snake was intended to be kept to remind people to worship God because he took care of them, because he delivered them and saved them. But in Hezekiah's day, they started taking that bronze snake and offering worship to the snake. And so Hezekiah took that thing and destroyed it because that thing that was initially intended for good had become an object of worship and idolatry, and Hezekiah destroyed it. There are things in our lives that are good, that can provide for us joy and security and pleasure, assurances in this life, that if those things begin to push out our need for the assurance of God and knowing Him, those good things can be idols in our lives. Let me give you one example. One of the greatest priorities today in our culture is family. Huge priority. I'm not saying that prioritizing family is bad. What I'm saying is when you prioritize family, to the degree that your efforts to create the family that you desire with all the assurances that come with a stable, connected family, and that effort to prioritize family pushes out God to the margins so that God's effectively left out of your family because you're seeking to build your family to be this, this dream that you want it to be because you believe it provides so much joy and assurance. Anytime you pursue the priority of family so that it marginalizes the priority of God and His purposes for your family, it just might be that the wonder of family is drifting into idolatry. You could say the same about your work about your hobbies, about your relationships, all the good things in our life that God intends for them to point us to our need for Him and the assurance that we really need that we know Him, those good things, when they marginalize God in our lives, can become idols. And here's what we need to do. We need to throw those kinds of bronze serpents to the ground and destroy them and realign those good things with the purposes of God for which He has made us and live those things out in ways that we are worshiping God, not neglecting Him. We want to have great families, but we don't want to have great families because a great family is the end goal. We want to have great families because the end goal is a vibrant church that takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we need to make sure that we're not seeking assurances outside of knowing God and knowing that we can know Him. 
But instead, we are allowing our pursuit of God and the assurance of knowing Him to flavor every other pursuit so that we are guarding ourselves from idols. When Lindley and I were first married, we went over on a cruise, and one of the places we stopped was St. Lucia. And uh, we went on this hike in St. Lucia, and we ended up this waterfall. It was like picture perfect, like what you see in a magazine. It was amazing. It's so lush, amazing waterfall falling down and cascading into this incredible pool of water. I could not help myself. I had to jump into that pool and let the waterfall just fall on me. I was like, only take my picture. This is like a magazine. And it was amazing, that water just falling all over me. I was in that waterfall. It was a picture perfect moment. It was amazing. We got out of there, and we, we dried off. We started heading back to the ship, and we were on our way back, and I realized when we were almost to the ship, I reached in my pocket, and I realized that my ID, my driver's license, and all my cash had been washed out of my pocket from the waterfall. All right, I'm in another country. My identity has been stolen by the waterfall, and I have no provision. But man, that waterfall was great. (laughs) That's what idolatry will do to us. We will get in there and we will feel so good about it. All the while, our identity is robbed and we're left with nothing. And so God says, keep yourselves from idols. That's the one threat from living from assurance to assurance. You want to know the easiest way to guard yourself from idols? Simple. It's in 1 John. Love God. Love God. Spend time in the Word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in worship. Because if you'll do that, out of that will come an awareness of your sin. And when you're aware of your sin, guess what you get to do? You get to confess that sin. And guess what happens when you confess it? You get cleansed from it. Guess what happens when you get cleansed from it? You get to experience the favor of God leveraged towards you so you can leave some of that sin behind for the rest of your life. And then you know you belong to the Lord. Love God. You know how you guard yourself from idols? Love people. How many times have we heard in 1 John? Love people. If you say you love God but you don't love people, you don't love God. Love people. Serve them with a sacrificial love, even the people that are hard to love, but especially the people who are easy to love. Are you sacrificing because God sacrificed for you? Are you loving because you've been loved? If you love God, you're going to love people. You want to guard yourself from idols? Love people. Tell them about Jesus. If you want to guard yourself from idols, you know how you do that? You help others do the same. Remember 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4? John says, hey, we've seen Jesus, we've experienced him, and we want to tell you about who we know, because we want you to know him, and if you come to know him with us, we're all going to know him together, and it's going to be amazing, and we want this to happen so that our joy would be full. Some of the greatest moments of assurance in my life that I know the Lord have come when I've simply helped somebody else find assurance. And I've never felt more guarded from idolatry than in moments of greatest assurance.
Guard yourselves from idols. Love God. Love people. Help others do the same.